We may not think about it very often, but there are search and rescue units that are stationed across our land. Some of these teams work the oceans and others work in mountainous regions. Some are in forested areas and in caves and rivers. Search and rescue units are also deployed during uh, natural disasters and some catastrophic events. There are people that have to look for people. It might be from the Coast Guard searching for a lost vessel at sea to a team of volunteers that are combing through a neighborhood looking for a missing child. Search and rescue missions are a vital aspect of any society that values life. And we're thankful for them and for their work. Now there's sometimes when people are lost that they don't really know it. They don't realize that they're in danger, unaware of their peril. We might take a couple of kids that found a canoe and set out onto a river on a warm summer day and they're having the time of their life as they go down this river not realizing that a little ways down they're going to begin to be sucked down a waterfall. They may not even want to know anybody who is uh, telling them that they need to watch out. There's somebody waving wildly on the banks of the river and they don't really, they're just laughing at them. They have no care or concern. They're lost. They need rescue but they don't know it. There are others who insist that they're not lost. They might even believe that they are lost, but they have no interest in being found, such as perhaps a runaway. The whole idea is to to be lost and for no one to find them. And then there are lost people we know, and we see these often in the media, who are desperately hoping that someone will find them and rescue them. This is the SOS on the beach, the Mayday call, the 911 call, waving wildly, knocking loudly in some way, hoping that someone will discover us and rescue us and give us life. A search and rescue theme is integral to the Bible's storyline. I think we need to recognize that. I don't think we'll ever really adequately understand the Bible or the Christian faith unless we grasp the central theme of spiritual rescue. Pull that thread from the Bible and everything falls apart. There's other threads that could be pulled that would make it to fall apart, but this is certainly one. That there is a rescue mission. Now that idea of a rescue mission is not pleasing to everyone. But we find in Scripture that the mission of Jesus Christ was a mission to seek and to rescue lost souls. That is, people who are alienated from God and headed toward eternal separation from Him. That idea is polarizing. As polarizing today as it was in the day of Jesus when His suggestion that people were spiritually lost ended up with Him being crucified. There were people who didn't like that message of there's lostness and there's a rescue in Christ. As we consider accounts from Christ's ministry, we see clearly how this message of rescue affected people in radically different ways. Some moved to kill Him, and others to this day singing His praise. In the light of these stories, we come to terms with our own response to Jesus as Savior of lost souls. 
And to that end, I'd like us to look at Luke chapter 18 and 19 today, where we find highlights of four divergent responses to Jesus' spiritual search and rescue mission. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18, is a passage that seeks to bring us all face to face with Jesus' mission. The first person that we meet is a rich young ruler who refuses to be rescued. Luke chapter 18, at verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Along with the parallel passages in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, we are right to say that this young man was wealthy and was sincere. We should read it and can read it that way. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His question assumes some things, doesn't it? It assumes that God has a standard which we are bound to keep. That God will judge ultimately in eternity how we keep that standard. And he assumes that he is able to live in such a way as to gain God's favor. Jesus responds with a question of his own in verse 19 and says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that could be read, if we, if we move too quickly, as an admission that Jesus is not good. Why would you call me good since I'm not good? But that's not exactly what he says, is it? Jesus subtly asks the man to evaluate why he calls Jesus good, since only God is good. In a few simple words, Jesus counters, first of all, the man's assumption that he can please God by means of good works. Let's start here. No one is good. But why then do you call me good? In what sense do you use that word of me? As we know of Jesus' teaching, ultimately he would be saying that he is indeed good. But does the man see it that way? I think the man's missing all of this. Really not catching much of it all, other than the fact that Jesus says no one is good except God. So Jesus now operates on this man's own terms. You want to talk about the law? You want to talk about how to be justified before God? Let's go there. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You know what God requires. You are a Jew who has received as part of this nation God's moral law. Obey Him and you will have eternal life. Notice the man's response. He says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Well, not really. Not really. When we come to understand the purity of God and the teaching of Christ, we know that we do commit adultery and that we can assume this man committed adultery. He committed adultery in his heart. He had murdered others in his spirit. He certainly had taken something that did not belong to him along the way. He had borne false witness about someone, and he had failed to honor his mother and his father sometime in his past. And as the Bible teaches, when we break the law of God, we become a violator of the law of all of it. We may not sin as much as others around us. We may not break every law of God pointedly and specifically, 
But when we sin against the perfect law of God, we are sinners. This man misses all of that. He says, I know God's law. I keep God's law. I'm good with all of this. Now there's irony in this. Do we hear the irony? He sees himself as above reproach with respect to God's law, and yet he has no confidence that he has eternal life. I keep God's law. I'm a good man. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know. Can you tell me, Jesus? There's irony in this. I've done all that, he claims. Isn't there something more? The Matthew text confirms that that's the right way to read it. What do I yet lack, he says there? All these I have kept from my youth. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, now, this, there's one of those phrases we just pass over real quickly. When Jesus heard this, he's been hearing all of this. So what does that mean when Jesus heard this? When Jesus heard this, I think is the idea of Jesus is sensing and understanding where this man is stuck. He thinks he's kept the law of God. When he heard this, he turns the conversation this way, verse 22. He said to him, well, let's run with that. Um, that's editorial. But one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus had been hearing all of these things, but as he sees where the man is stuck, he goes to the heart. All right, you believe you've kept the law in relationship to others, so to speak, the second half of the law. One thing you still lack in the first section of the law is your relationship to God. So let's put that to the test. I don't believe at all that Jesus is conceding that the man had indeed kept the law. He's just going at it from a different angle. Rather than getting into a debate whether he had always honored his mother and his father, he gets right to the heart of the matter he meets the man on ground of his own choosing, and he says, no matter how good you perceive yourself to be, you are clinging to your wealth like a drowning man clings to a metal safe. Sell everything you have and come follow me. That's his rescue. It is to follow Christ, and in following Christ, he's going to need to divest himself of his properties, and he's going to have to deal with that idol in his heart. The point is not, as some think, that Jesus is saying, by giving your wealth away, you will gain eternal life. I think he is subtly saying you cannot love God and money. So this is a call to demonstrate that he loves God with all of his heart. He believes that he has obeyed the second table of the law, which stipulates that we love our neighbor as ourself. Now Jesus challenges him, show that you love God with all of your heart. Follow me. I'm good. I'm worth following. I'll lead you in the right way. And give away your money. Give it to others and follow me. That's a tough call. It is a tough test of his faith. 
What Jesus is saying to him, though, I think we need to understand, is not you can earn favor with God by giving your wealth away, but by letting go of that safe, that metal safe as you're drowning in the sea, and reaching for my hand, I will rescue you. Follow me. The Bible directs us to make money. It directs us to enjoy money, 1 Timothy 6. The problem is not with money itself, but the issue is will he let go of his idol to gain the greater treasure of following Christ? Will he let go of this world's wealth and say, in following Christ, then I'll make whatever money I need to make and use it however I should use it and enjoy it the way God wants me to enjoy it? But right now in his life, Jesus perceives money is in the way. He cannot love God and money, so he's going to have to make a choice. Will he let go of his idol to gain the greater treasure of following Christ? Verse 23, what's his response? But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, there's a connection here back to 1817. Where Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I think contextually there's a connection here. This man holds on for dear life to his money and continues to drown in the abyss of his spiritual emptiness. Rather than responding in childlike faith, his heart is clogged with adult-like dependence. And Jesus exposes the idol of money, the idolatry that is clinging to the man's heart. He was morally lost. He was separated from God and he had no idea. Given the choice, he chose to love his money and to turn his back on his Savior. And it was for this man a death sentence. Plummer writes in his commentary, he went back to the wealth which had not satisfied him before and which would satisfy him still less now. But he couldn't let go. He would not let go. And Jesus, verse 24, seeing that he had become sad, that he was disappointed, that he was not going to respond and follow Christ, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a figure of speech, which means it's impossible. You can't get a camel through an eye of a needle, and no matter how you turn the thing or twist it, you're not going to work it out. This is impossible is the point. Why? Because wealth can become an idol that clouds people's capacity to see that they are lost and in need of God's spiritual rescue. I'm, off, I'm fine the way I am. That's what wealth does. What it tends to do. I'm just fine like I am. Bach writes, Wealth can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impassable peephole. The self-focused security of the wealthy is a padlock against the kingdom of God and kingdom entry. Such teaching troubled those who were around Jesus. They, they didn't hear that and, and like it. 
Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is impossible for a rich person to respond to this message of salvation and rescue. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can find lost souls and he can liberate them from their bondage to cheap idols. God can do this and only God can do this. Verse 28 Peter says, as he responds to this, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, the disciples, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, Peter and the disciples had left much to follow Christ, but Jesus does not compliment Peter here, does He? He doesn't feel sorry for him and say, wow, have you ever done the kingdom of God a great favor? What does He say? You will receive much, much more than you ever give. It's like a little girl colors a picture for her parents and wants to be compensated for it. <laughs> and mom and dad just smile and as they're paying her food and shelter and clothing and schooling and insurance and everything else and they smile and receive her picture they're thankful for it and maybe they even give her a dime for it knowing oh how much more she's receiving this is in a sense what jesus says to peter you've left houses and homes do you have any idea what you're gaining in this life, and in the life to come, eternity in God's presence. You cannot outgive God. You cannot put Him in your debt. There are wrong ways of giving to God, certainly. But as we give rightly to the Lord, we gain much, much more. We're like a little child coloring a picture, and we receive from our Father full love and support forever yes peter you've left much and yes peter you've gained much this man had if he had left his wealth would have won he would have gained not lost he's the loser he goes back to his earthy wealth it was not satisfying him would never satisfy him and was pulling him down, drowning him. All that we give to Christ will pale in comparison to the eternal riches that God freely gives to His people in this life and the next. The second response to Jesus we find in verse 31. Taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Let me stop there just for a moment. We set this in the life of Jesus. He's crossing the Jordan River. It's a short hike to the village city of Jericho. And from there, about a 17-mile upward journey to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem here, verse 31. Jesus knows that he's, as He's going to Jerusalem, He'll never return. This is a death march. He knows precisely how he will be treated in Jerusalem because God revealed the outcome to the prophets through the centuries. 
Jesus has come to understand these prophecies. He knows what God is doing, and he knows that this is what's going to happen. Verse 31. Everything written about the Son of Man that the prophets have written will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. I will rise again. Jesus knows how he will be treated. He knows the Roman authorities will execute him. And as he has done two previous times and intimated four other times, he assures his disciples that he will rise from the dead. In this clear, concise way, Jesus identifies the very heart of his rescue mission. It is his death and his resurrection from the dead. By entering into death, he will kill death. His death will pay the penalty of sin and His resurrection will stand as God's approval of this rescue mission. The Bible consistently teaches that Jesus did not come merely to leave behind a moral example to follow. He came to die. And He came to rise again. To defeat death by entering into it and destroying it. He was not merely a teacher of good behavior. The good news that is proclaimed in each of these four Gospels and throughout the entire Bible on some level, the good news, the message Luke is proclaiming, is that Jesus died in the place of sinners to bear God's wrath. To bear His wrath against sin and to provide forgiveness for all who trust that all-sufficient work. But at this stage in the process, Verse 34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. There would be not the kind of resistance that the rich ruler provided. Disappointment, unwillingness to part from the idol of wealth. And in Jerusalem, there would be a whole other response. Jesus presenting Himself as the Savior and the Rescuer would be killed. People would not receive the message. It's another and harsher response. A third response we find at verse 35. A blind man who sees Messiah as he drew near to Jericho, so he's crossed the Jordan River moving Um, westward and upward, first to Jericho, this first city that he will pass. And a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's a festive time. Pilgrims are moving upward to Jerusalem, and many would be passing through Jericho, a major route across the Jordan and up to Jerusalem. And they would often kind of, rabbis would travel and and their students would gather around them and the rabbis would teach as they walked. many, Many times it was many days in travel walking. And as they would pass into a city, into a town, the people who lived there would often gather around to catch a piece of the teaching. 
It's kind of like we might relate to a, a newspaper or something of the like in our day to get some information, to hear some new idea, to hear what the teaching of the day and how people were filtering things. And that seems to be what's happening here with Jesus. His disciples are going with them. They're going into this town. And this blind man hears about it and starts to cry out to the son of David. Have mercy on me, he says. He had heard that Jesus had the power to heal, a power that witnessed to the authenticity of God's blessing upon Messiah's life, his approval of what Messiah was doing. This man was fully aware of his need to be rescued. He didn't, no one had to convince him of that. He had heard that Jesus had healed the blind. And he desperately seeks Jesus' attention. He does not precisely know where Jesus is, He can't go find him because he's blind, and so he yells. He lifts his voice in hopes that that will get Jesus' attention. It also irritates the crowd around him who wants to hear what Jesus is saying. And so verse 39, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Now he knew he had him. He he knew he was in the region. And so he yells out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is a man who's who needs rescue, physically, blind. He knows he needs Jesus. And Jesus stopped. The great rabbi, maybe no more popular name in Israel than Christ. Indeed, I'd argue there couldn't be at this time. And he stops by this poor, blind beggar. And he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Simple, obvious. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Walking through Jericho, Jesus circles the walls of death, so to speak, here by defeating the effects of death in this blindness. The curse has fallen upon this world, and because of that curse, there is death and all types of physical malady. This healing puts the enemy of death on notice that seemingly indestructible walls will soon come tumbling down. A man who couldn't see now sees. This man's response is that he followed Jesus, glorifying God with great joy. What a difference there is between him and the rich man. What a difference there will be between him and the rulers in Jerusalem. With great joy, receiving what Jesus gives. A fourth response, we find a rich man repenting. In verse 1 of chapter 19, we see that he entered Jericho, the city itself, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. If you're tracking with Luke, what are you saying? He's a rich man. He can't be saved, right? Haven't we established that? It's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And here we face another rich man. Well, this isn't going to end well. That's, I mean, we're led to almost think that. He was seeking, verse 3, just like the blind man, to see Jesus. He wanted to see who he was. Now, I didn't say it earlier, probably should have, but there's an interesting thing that the blind man does. The people said, Jesus of Nazareth is here, and he calls out to him, Jesus, son of David. 
Nobody said he was Jesus' son of David, but that is a messianic title. He found in Jesus a source of rescue and help. This man, in contrast, doesn't know who Jesus really is. He just wants to see him, wants to find out who he is. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. The one man was blind in Jericho. This man can't see either, but for another reason. He can't see over the crowd. He's short and too short to see Jesus. That's not stopped him before. He's become a very, very wealthy man. In fact, he's a rich man. And that is because he was a racketeer, a chief extortioner in Jericho. Jericho was a regional tax center, and Zacchaeus oversaw the racket. As people would pass over the Jordan and work their way up to Jerusalem right on this major road, Zacchaeus was the one that was running the show. He would make people take their things and undo them, all of their luggage, if they had a cart or something of the like, unpack it, find out everything that's here, and people would, the, the tax collectors working under him would come up with arbitrary taxes. And they, he would get a cut, and he had become an extremely wealthy man. He had a lot of people working under him, which would indicate in that context he was a ruthless man who was living off of theft from his own countrymen serving the Roman Empire that was dominating his people. He didn't care. A Jew? Didn't stop him. A short man? Didn't stop him. He had found a way to get very rich. He had long been suffocating in the fog of materialistic depravity. The blind man in Jericho could not see. Zacchaeus was going to find a way to see this Jesus. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I mean, you just have to smile at least to see this. Here's this filthy, wealthy man in a tree trying to get a position to see Jesus. It's not exactly the most dignified place to enter upon, uh, entering upon then the scene, the greatest rabbi in Israel at the time. And here you are in a tree, hoping he didn't notice. But here he is, and Jesus speaks to him and says, come down. His response, 1817, is like a little child. Verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Scrambling down the tree, Zacchaeus lands at Jesus' feet with a thud. There's no resistance on Zacchaeus' part. There's no calculated, cold reception. He's thrilled to welcome Jesus. All pretensions aside, his society hates his guts. Isn't anybody around there that he's got to impress? He's got his wealth, but he's intrigued by this teacher. And now he's coming to my house? Thrilled to welcome Jesus. The crowd not so thrilled. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We don't quite get this in our culture, but in that culture, to eat with such a man was to be guilty of his sin. In their mind, in their thinking, not in Jesus' thinking, but in their thinking, to eat at his house was to participate in the, well, in, in the ill-gotten gain of this wealthy man. And so they grumble and say, this, this teacher ought to know better than this. 
Zacchaeus is a bad guy. Why would you go to his house? Why would you commend him in this way? Why would you favor him over everyone else? There's far better homes in which to eat as he travels to Jerusalem. Why Zacchaeus? Well, we don't know exactly what happened there. We just know Zacchaeus was thrilled, the crowd was mad, and Jesus was eating. Zacchaeus was in a tree, now he's reclining at table with Christ, and whatever took place in that meal, we're not told what was said, but it had a life-transforming result upon Zacchaeus. He was never the same again. A camel was about to go through the eye of a needle. A rich man who had made a living off of other people's suffering says this. Think of it in context. This is like the worst drug addict you can find who just preys on other people. And at this meal, he says this, verse 8, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The rich young ruler, I've kept the law. You can't help me. This man, I've broken the law, and I'm going to make it right. It's repentance that we see here. Many years before, the walls of an ancient city had fallen flat here in Jericho, and on this day, the stone-cold heart of a white-collar crook came crashing down. By making restoration fourfold, this wealthy man was about to become much poorer. But his repentance proved that he had become eternally rich. That he had turned from his idol of wealth and God had passed a camel through the eye of a needle. Man cannot do this. Zacchaeus didn't set out for this transformation that day, but he met Christ and he was changed. As Jesus confirms, verse 9, he said, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. This is a wicked man. And that would have shocked many people to think this way. As they looked at the rich young ruler, they say, this is a good guy. He keeps the law of God. He's really an upstanding citizen. This guy, Zacchaeus, he's dirt. But In that moment of time, Jesus says, this is a righteous man. Not because of his track record. Not because there was no sin in his life. Because he had met Christ and turned from his sin. Because he had let go of the idol in his life and had embraced the Savior. And it showed in the way that he was willing to change his ways and to love in the place of hating. Instead of getting, he was going to be one who gave. And Jesus says, then at verse 10, for the Son of Man, that is Him, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's His mission. Jesus came to do a lot of things, but if you want to get to the heart of it, of why He came, then we have to listen to Him. There are many today who are taking Jesus' mission and saying, we'll define it for you. You came to heal the sick. You came to feed the poor. You came to bring people together in love. 
And all of that is true. But when it comes to the heart and the core of why Jesus came in his own thinking, I came to seek and to save the spiritually lost. He's on a rescue mission, and he's not hiding about it. He says it up front. It seemed that Zacchaeus was desperate to seek out Jesus all the time. All along, Jesus had been seeking Zacchaeus. Perched ridiculously in a tree, he now reclines at table in fellowship with Christ. Though a Jew by birth, he now truly is a son of Abraham, not because he found Jesus, not because of his track record, but because Jesus found him. And when he saw Christ, he let go of all of his idols and said, this is a greater treasure. And This is how the salvation of Jesus works. We learn in this text, we have it all pretty much here, much more can be filled in, but we have it here. Its, its basis is His death and His resurrection. Those who crucified Christ, that response that He prepares His disciples for, those who crucified Christ hated His message of rescue and executed Him. But we know that it took place according to the plan of God, Acts chapter 2, 22 and following. It was God's design that the Son would be executed. Even in this wicked response to him, at the core of it all is his death and resurrection. That's its basis. Its requirement is repentance and trust in Christ, turning from our idols and our sin to embrace the one true and living Savior. And its result? Well, ask Zacchaeus. What's the result? It's joy, it's a transformed life, it's a brand new day. This son of Abraham, that is, this one now of faith, who puts his faith and his confidence in God, not in the toys of this life, not in the things that this world can provide, but in this Savior who came to rescue from sin. In the pages of God's Word today, we encounter here the Lord Jesus Christ on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And I would ask you, in light of these accounts, where do you locate yourself in this story? I don't mean that you have to identify with one of these four perfectly or something along those lines, but certainly like the rich man, we do fail to obey God's law. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. None of us is righteous before Him by means of our works. We would identify with that. We should identify with that message. And indeed, because of our sin against the holy God, we all had part in the death of Jesus. We did not execute Him physically, but it is our sin that necessitates His death to pay sin's penalty in the place of sinners. We must all identify with these aspects of the story. But I ask you personally, how does your heart respond to this story, to this revelation that you are a sinner who fails to keep God's law. I, I, don't, I can't know what your response is, but you know inside you hear that and you respond a certain way. Is it like a child? With childlike faith? With simple admission? With humility? Or is there resistance? 
How do you respond, secondly, that you put, your, that you put other loves idolatrously ahead of any love for God? That this is a problem we need to be rescued from. We don't give God His place. Thirdly, that you need spiritual rescue from a Savior. That you need to be rescued from sin. How do you respond to these themes? Many bristle. Many are offended. Many are at least dismissive in some way or the other. And really at the heart of it, they're saying, I don't need to be saved because I'm not lost. But the answer that we see demonstrated in this passage and in the Bible is that in simple childlike faith, we really should be yelling out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. We should be climbing a tree if that's necessary and scurrying down to meet with Him in simple childlike faith saying, yes, I break the law of God. Yes, I need your rescue. And yes, you are the greatest treasure in this world and the next. So I would encourage you, if there's resistance here, if you say, well, that's a good story, or I don't know if I buy this, or maybe you're even offended by what I'm saying, I would invite you, I would encourage you to invite God's Spirit to open your eyes to the realization that your soul is lost, that we're born in that state of lostness. That you will not inherit eternal life apart from God's intervention. You will not keep His laws faithfully enough to enter into the Lord's presence for eternity. And that such intervention is found in the person and the work of Jesus, the Son of David. In this place today, here, God is seeking the lost. Jesus is seeking to save. Are you a lost soul in need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God? Honestly? Will you respond in faith to Christ's rescue mission, repent of your sin, and embrace His gift of eternal life? Will you join us in singing for joy to the Lord? We gather here on the Lord's day to sing because we yelled out and he saved us we scurried down from the tree and we have fellowship in his presence and gather here then to rejoice on the lord's day and every day of our lives if you're separated from that joy we long for you to enter into it by walking into a relationship with jesus christ it's free it's based entirely on mercy, and it's eternal in its worth.